When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the final episode of this season of My Big Break, the podcast series from Motorsport that looks into the key moments in a driver's career that led them to where they are today. I'm Chris Medland, and following the likes of Valtteri Bottas, Pierre Gasly, Kevin Magnussen, Kamui Kobayashi and Elio Castroneves in this season is Anthony Davidson, who has had a remarkable career full of near misses. A world champion in WEC, Davidson talks candidly about the race that secured him a BAR testing role, the F1 debut he thinks was a mistake and the ongoing impact of seeing a Le Mans win disappear in the final five minutes of the 24 hours. And thanks so much for joining us. I can't wait to talk about your incredible career that we can only recently say is over as a driver or as a competitive racing driver, um, because I know you still do a lot more. Um, you haven't retired from everything in motorsport, uh, but we're going to start at the other end of your career as we look for your big breaks, and the initial starting point is usually a key one. So what led to you actually getting behind the wheel? Oh, what led to me getting behind the wheel was basically my father's interest in in racing. He never raced himself. Um, And when he had kids one day, he had this grand plan, I think, to get me and my brothers into racing uh, instead of himself in go-karting, which was quite a a new thing for kids um, in the late 80s as it was for, for us back then. And um, I think that really, it, it sparked something in the family. It, it really, I mean, it was it was his sport, it was his hobby. Um, and me and my elder brother were just, you know, the lucky drivers that would race around the track. And uh, I guess in the early days, for my dad's benefit, <laughs> it was really, you know, it, was his, it was totally his sport, his outfit that he ran, you know, his little karting team with his trailer and, would take us around the country racing here there and everywhere um and yeah so it was really when when my eighth birthday came around that was the year when you could start karting um and uh like i said it was quite a a new thing back in those days for for such young kids to be taking to the sport and um yeah he he jumped into it and um yeah we, we never looked back so that really was the first moment that I had behind the wheel um I loved it and I think my dad loved it even more I'm glad you said you loved it because I was waiting for that moment I wanted to make sure that we hadn't just had this amazing career where you're like I didn't really want to do this but um yeah totally pushed into it (laughs) (laughs) but how quickly did you kind of start to love it because I mean you've got a, a heck of a karting record so I mean winning must have helped you love it but was it straight away was there like a bug there I mean I think everyone enjoys that exhilaration. Um, you know, that's why theme parks exist, why we have roller coasters. And I think, you know, karting gives you that kind of, that that buzz. Anyone that's ever tried it, you know, they always get out with a big smile on their face. And, you know, whether you're a kid trying it for the first time or a grown-up that doesn't even hold a road car license, you, 
you always see people come off the car circuit and, and, and rave about their time they've had behind the wheel. So I don't think that was any different for, for me when I was a kid there. Um, but I think you enjoy, you can enjoy those moments in different ways. You can enjoy that. My enjoyment for driving in the beginning was just literally getting into the machine and driving it around the track. Mm. That was all I needed, um, to, to have fun. And then quite quickly, the fun only comes when you start having success. And then the fun only comes when you start winning and then winning even more. And then to the point where you're disappointed in finishing even second um, against, you know, a sea of other talent out there, you you only feel happy and satisfied um, and keen to do more when you win. And uh, and it's amazing how quickly that that transformation takes place and lives with you for the rest of your entire career. I mean, at that stage, though, was it? feeling like a potential career or was it just a hobby to you was it just something fun to oh do? no yeah back then it was just it was just fun um you know it was just to put it in perspective we started i think we did six or seven car meetings in a whole year um mm. by the end of my childhood in karting i'd say when i was about 11 12 years old in the very early cadet class they call it from eight to 12 year olds it was back then um in my last season in cadet carts, we did 46 meetings in one year. <laughs> so oh. out of a 52 weekend season, that's, um, that's pretty intense. So, uh, yeah, it's fair to say we were, we were doing it, um, yeah, burning the wick at both ends and, um, the competition was high. You know, we were, we were racing against the likes of Dan World and Jensen Button, Gary Paffett, and it was, it was pretty full on. So you can imagine how, how sharp the competition was and, um, you know, you, 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 if you took one or two weekends out, you were losing your edge and you knew they would be out testing and racing and, and when you weren't. So it just, that competition really, it, it, like anything, you know, it pushes you on to new heights. Um, so yeah, that, that's really, uh, but I didn't, I didn't think at that stage that it would be a career. I knew I was good at it, um, when I was that age, but I, I didn't, I didn't, yeah, you're too young to even think about. You, you never, you can never imagine you being an adult when you're when you're a kid, can you? It, it, it's um, you think you're gonna like have perpetual childhood, um, but I think the the when I realised that this was becoming more my sport, something I wanted to do forever, and like whether I was driving or or, or not, I wanted to be involved in motorsport. I think I was about fourteen years old. Uh, when I was in uh, the, the next category up from from the cadet class, and that's when I realised, yeah, I think this this is this is definitely what I want to do for the rest of my life, um, work wise. Mm. I mean, just picking up on that, I can't imagine being an adult now, let alone when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> yeah, when uh, when you put it that way, and you talk about the competition you had, reflecting on it, do you think that was actually? one of the big breaks of your career was having that standard and that class of drivers that you were up against because you must have pushed each other like constantly to keep improving. And like you say, like to put in that time and effort at that age must have really stood you in good stead to go further in motorsport. Oh, without question. Yeah, without question. The, uh, you know, the competition being as strong as it was, you, you were either going to sink or swim, you know, mm. and 
from that moment on, I only ever wanted to compete against the best in the business. And I think, you know, me and me and my family, me particularly my father, we, we knew from such an early stage that what we were looking at in that click of, of, of that era I was in, of those direct competitors with Weldon and Button, I, he, I think he picked up on it first. He, he knew he was watching something special. He knew it wasn't just some kids that are pretty good in carts. I think, I think he knew that there was potential there for not just one, not just two of them, but all three of them to go on to great things in motorsport and to have a cracker world championship in, in Formula One to go right to the top. Why not? And, um, mm. It's quite funny. He, he, from very early on, he, he had a, and he often reminds me of this. This is not, not today, but back in the day, he did. He said, oh, I spoke to a, a gentleman called Marcus Pye, and he works for one of the, uh, one of the big motoring magazines. And, and I said to him, that, <laughs> yeah. one of these drivers is going to be a Formula One world champion. You mark my words. And he looked at me and said, huh, some kind of a soothsayer, are you? <laughs> <laughs> hey, he so, was right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And he was right. Did he ever get the chance to prove it right as well? Did he ever get to see Marcus oh, after? Of course. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he did, he did. And, uh, I think he was quite happy to be proved wrong, you know. He was, um, it, it's, it's funny, you know, that, and it just goes to show that some of the, some of the regulars, you know, you look down your nose at the newbies. Um, I think there's a lesson in that for everyone. You, you have to respect everyone in their own field because they've got the eye. They know what they're looking at and you, there's no room for pompousness or arrogance. I think you need to respect the eye of people in their, in their chosen field. That moment when they're doing it to the nth degree, there's really nothing else beats that experience and that niche that you find yourself in. Mm, yeah, get a real, real feel for it and appreciation for it. But you, you mentioned the importance of your father then and getting you going with karting and running the team himself but stepping up to single seaters in 99 which still seems mad to me now the way we talk about the way careers go and it was what 12 years worth of karting before you then step up to a formula ford car what what support did you need for that was that a natural transition did it need you to go elsewhere to try and find funding for it how did that come about well this is one of the, the the biggest turning points i guess um a driver trying to get from karting into single seater motorsport. You know, I did karting through and through. I was, I, I, I say, like you say, for 12 years, I even became a professional in karting. I thought for a while that was going to be me. I thought that was the highest I was ever going to get um, in my career. And I couldn't see any way to, to find funding to, to make the, the jump into, say, Formula Ford or, or Formula Renault, something like that. You know, it's, it's too much money and it's it, that that void is growing ever bigger today. Um, so it's, it's putting even more strain on, on families that are, you know, pretty well off that can never even imagine to take their offspring into karting and, and through into uh, the, the world of, of motorsport after that. Um, this is pretty scary, actually. I think there's, there's a serious point there um, that something needs to change. Mm. Um, because you know there's a there's an ever bigger divide between the haves and the have-nots, and and you're you're limiting the amount of talent that you can see get into Formula One one day, or, or anything else really for that matter, any other category of sport in, in most sports. So, luckily, we were around in a time when 
it was expensive because it's always been a, a rich person's sport, but um, it, it was definitely more affordable percentage wise. It was more affordable um, in relative terms back then. And, uh, but still in saying that my family didn't have the money nowhere near to, to get me into Formula Ford. And so I just, I just happily accepted that, uh, you know, I, that was me. And uh, I'd seen by this point, the likes of Jensen and Dan Weld and the guys that I raced against all that time, my whole karting career, they, they went off into, into other category. I think both in Formula Ford actually in 99, Jensen, uh, competed in Formula Ford and I, I was still in karting. So being a year older than him, I thought, ah, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm missing out here. And in desperation, um, I, I went to Brands Hatch uh, just to go and watch a few uh, test sessions in Formula Ford. And I, I dabbled a bit by being offered a, a, you know, free drive here and there in a one-off test session and, and, and knew that I would be, I'd be okay behind the wheel in one of those things, be fast enough. Um, but every time you, you came to the same, the same situation was, you know, the, the, the team boss of whatever team it was would always ask you how much money have you got? No matter how hard they wanted you to get you into the car, you had to pay for it. No one was give, gonna give you uh, a factory drive, a free ride like you would have in karting and I had become quite accustomed to. Uh, because of my results and you kind of think you know surely you need me in your car because I'll deliver the goods and that's good for your brand and your team and it didn't work like that in, in most sport it was a business um, in single season it was a business they, they needed the income the revenue to keep their team afloat so that was a big learning curve and one that continued to be a dead end until that day I went to Brands Hatch and met a whole load of people and one of those people I met was um, not working with Ray Cars, but they were affiliated with the with the with the brand with the team, and Bert Ray himself. Um, and that went on to be my uh, my future manager Didier Stossel, who was racing as an amateur at the time. Um, he had a bit of funding behind him, and he had seen the likes of Jensen come through, say, and, and thought, I can do that with a young driver and, um, and and kind of give something back to the sport and have a bit of fun and maybe an investment while I'm doing it. And, uh, mm. and, and, and yeah, the rest is history. That was my, that was my big, big break. And without him, without that moment, I just never would have found the backing to get into Formula Ford and um, signed a long-term deal with him, one that which... If I succeeded, I would pay him back everything. Um, and of course, a retainer going forward from, from that point. And if I didn't, it was good fun for him. We tried and, um, you know, and, and you don't always succeed in investments. So um, mm. I think he was willing to take that, that punt and had watched me in karting and knew I was a, uh, an up and coming name. And yeah, it was, it was exciting times for him. It was exciting times for me. And um, it was just, yeah, it was, it was fantastic, but it all worked out. It wasn't easy and it wasn't cheap, but uh, yeah, we, we made it work and um, picked up a, uh, after winning the Formula Ford Festival, that was actually quite a, a pivotal moment um, where I was right on the brink of 
becoming part of the Young Driver, the very early Young Driver program with BAR in, in F1. Mm-hmm. And so they were, they were looking at young talent. They were just starting this, this Young Driver program. And, and one of the conditions was for this to go any further uh, in negotiation with my manager that I had to win something. I'd finished second in the, in the Formula Ford Championship that year. Um, but the festival was the big one. That's the one that everyone really wants to win. And, um, and they said, basically, you, you need to win something. Yes, you can't, you, nobody gets into Formula One without winning anything. So it, that was, that was the condition. And yeah, I went out there and won it. And on that evening, we, we were in contact with them. I actually had a phone call with, uh, Rick Gordon, who was, um, at BAR at the time. And he was looking after the young driver program and, um, and yeah, that, that was uh, that was a big, big moment. So those two sections of my career were really the turning points where it's like that sliding doors film, isn't it? If you didn't, if you didn't go to Brands that day and meet everybody, and if you didn't win the Formula Ford Festival, it, you just you never would have made it into Formula One, um, let alone single seaters from karting. Um- so both of those events, though, took place at Brands Hatch, am I right? The, the Formula 4 Festival as well itself was at Brands. That's right, yeah. So. Yeah, and I think that's why I originally went there, because it was around that time of the year when they were testing before the up-and-coming Formula 4 Festival. Mm. So they were all getting all these teams, all the big teams would arrive all the way, you know, from Europe, they would arrive at Brands, and so you had more opportunity to, to seek out other teams, not just from this country, but elsewhere. And um, I think that's really, that's why I went along. Um, It was, I went along with an old associate from my karting days as well, um, who couldn't believe that I was not in single seaters yet. So what are you doing? Why, why are you, you know, you've got got those records in karting to back it up. Why why are you still there doing it? And I said, well, no money, it's pretty simple. and no contacts and so it was him that put pressure on me to go there mm. i thought that no, i'll go there just to humor the guy and uh and actually to be fair you know it uh, it was absolutely the right thing to do oh i mean i know the people are, are crucial to it but it also shows that the place as well so brand Hatch must have some pretty fond memories for you for opening those doors or being the place where those doors opened but uh what i find oh, crazy, it really does yeah what i find crazy from there is that especially when we put it in today's context is you stepped out of carts after so long and like you say just trying to get someone to give you the opportunity to show what you could do but in a formula ford and within what 12 months you had an f1 test drive yeah that's right yeah so it was a you know th- this is the time when we were seeing this new generation you know the the buttons the raikkonens uh, who I think Raikkonen only did one season of Formula Renault mm. uh, before stepping up to Sauber Formula One, and yeah, th- these were these were unprecedented times. Nobody had ever seen the likes of Raikkonen before do what he did, and it made people realise, oh my goodness, you've got to really fast track this. And it's look from my side, it was a brilliant way to try to. Uh, limit the expenses as well. Mm. You know, a season of Formula Ford back then was around 200, 250 grand in pounds. Uh, and then a season of Formula 3 with Carlin, that was over a million. And it's crazy numbers. It's just crazy. And that was back then. I mean, I know it's even greater today um, for fewer races. So it's, uh, 
it, it's it's money that's just burning a hole and, and you can't just keep or I can at least afford to keep pounding on through the years year after year of spending this kind of insane money uh, so you had to fast track it you had to start earning from it as soon as possible and I think I think that's why as soon as I was offered the opportunity to become a professional test driver for the F1 team I had to take it not just because I, I felt that was the right thing to do for my career it was the right thing to do financially or the only thing to do mm. financially yeah I guess it, finally having that kind of security must have been um maybe a, was it a pressure off did it let you kind of think forward and think right I'm, I'm on the cusp of f1 now i can take my time to get there or was it pressure on because every time you got into the car or, or did any work with the f1 team you think i've got to prove myself i've got to prove myself oh definitely the latter 100 percent the latter yeah whenever especially when you're that age as well in your early 20s you you're just so keen to carry on proving to the world how good you are and and you're full of confidence and yeah every time you get in the car you it was great back in those days as well because you had the race drivers there alongside you every single time you went testing you were covering in a season you'd cover 10,000 to 15,000 kilometers a year and so you really had a chance to show the team you were driving for uh, not just how constructive you were with your feedback and how you could help improve the team and their car but also how you could take the the fight lap time wise to your teammates who were the race drivers and they were fresh from the race weekend, they would go testing the week after and it was a, it was a big business back then. You know, we were, we were pretty much after every Grand Prix off with our separate test team to go to the likes of Barcelona or Paul Ricard or, or, or Jerez in Spain. And we were pounding the laps in um, with either Jacques Villeneuve, Jensen Button or Olivier Panis alongside you. And you had this absolute barometer, this yardstick of, of, of how you were getting on in comparison. And there was nowhere to hide. So, you know, the team had all the data like they, they always do. And it was, it was just really exciting for me to know that it was every time you were stepping in that car, it was, uh, it was kind of like your showpiece. You, 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 had to, you had to perform and to give yourself a chance to you know, one day hopefully step up like Damon Hill did, for example, with, with Williams mm -hmm. uh, or David Coulthard. It's, it's, or, or even Olivier Panis himself, you know, he used to be a test driver mm. back in the day. And um, I think I was more along those lines. I wanted to, now I had my foot in the door of the world of F1. I, I stopped racing uh, in, in the junior categories and, and just focused 100% on that. I don't think it was the right thing to do. I really think I should have carried on racing as well. But like I say, I didn't have that luxury of just burning through the cash to to do it. Um, so in many ways, it was it was my only opportunity. But I think there was we probably could have stretched to another season or two. Um, maybe you know won the Formula Three Championship the year after um, instead of finishing second to Sato in two thousand and one. Probably could have gone on and. and taken the fight to try and win the championship. Uh, but yeah, you, you, there, I think there was a change of car as well. That see, so that you had this element of doubt that what if it's not suddenly the best team to be with and things have changed too much and then you don't win and we're just 
spend a whole lot more money and you know and, and right now you know, you, you've got to look after um, that kind of perception that you carry with you as a driver and I think you know you're thinking you're trying to weigh up all these uh, all these all of these um, permutations that float through your head and what other people might be thinking of you as a driver and it's, it's very difficult um, so yeah look we together we made that decision me and my manager to to focus just 100% on the test driving. I feel that when I did get the chance to race, I looked back at that negatively and I thought, oh, it was a mistake not to race for five years or so, um, just mm. focusing on the testing. And, and I felt like I, when I had my chance to, to jump back behind the wheel in a, in a racing environment, I'd lost a little bit of that killer instinct, that, that, that kind of cutthroat nature that, uh, that, that you have to, experience in a race and and the testing wasn't giving me that and i was without realizing i think falling into just being a test driver and being very good at it but i was just making that my own and i think that's how people started to perceive me they knew i was fast but you know the, the question kept coming out yeah but can you race can you race and you're like well yeah i, I can because didn't you see me in those 12 years of karting and the two years I did, one in Formula 4 and Formula 3. But by this point, five years down the line, uh, people quickly forget. Yeah, I was going to say, was there, I'm going to pick out one race that you did do. Well, actually, you didn't, but you tried to do, which was Macau in 2001. And knowing what the sort of Formula 4 Winter Festival had done for you, knowing what one-off big races could do, especially at that time, you had to withdraw because you, you got injured. It was on medical grounds, wasn't it, after... Um, well, before the races. So did that feel like an important point where if you could have maybe gone and won at Macau or shown up well at Macau, that that would have also been another kind of feather in your cap to convince people that as a racing driver, they needed to be promoting you quicker? It could have been. I mean, you, you never know, really. Um, looking back, you, you never know which race would have been the one to propel you further. But um, the way I saw it then, I, I was already a race winner, multiple race winner in Formula 3 and I won the Poe Street Grand Prix and, you know, that's a, another big race of the season um, and had really taken the fight to Sato as well, who was in his second and a half season of, of Formula 3 back then and he had the, the might of Honda behind him and I think in many ways that was part of the problem because I was also trying to get into the same team that he was trying to get into. BAR Honda and it was always going to be him of course it was you know he was the one that won the championship he was the one that won the cow he was the one that was Japanese had the backing of Honda and of course it was going to happen um, at some point where you know, you know like we see with Yuki Tsunoda today you know they, they they look after their drivers at Honda and um, you know I can't begrudge him at all for one second for that um, and you understand the business behind it but uh, you know I think that just unfortunately was it was it was great that I was taken by any Formula One team to be their test driver, but unfortunately it was a team where also Sato, who I had raced heavily through that two thousand one season at Carlin, uh, was also knocking on the door of, and um, yeah, he was always going to barge through that door before me, um, and yeah, you know, it's, it's I don't think in winning Macau that would have. I don't think that would have changed anything with the immediate team that I was trying to get in with. 
perhaps others, I don't know. Um, I, I really don't know whether it, it would have changed much, really. Well, it's interesting you mentioned others because I do want to move on to another team, the one you made your, your Formula 1 debut with, race debut. How did the Minardi opportunity come about? How did those talks, because, you know, it seems strange now seeing drivers so closely associated with one team that didn't seem to have a link to another team suddenly appearing quite last minute, wasn't it? It was uh, Hungary and Belgium in 2002. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 2002. So only only really halfway into my um, full-time testing role with BAR, I think I, I had a dabble at straight line test in 2001 with them. Um, but yeah, I, I'd started to do more track testing with, with BAR Honda in 2002 and that was becoming a more of a full-time thing or my only thing behind the wheel. And um, yeah, this opportunity came up with Minardi halfway through the season for Budapest where I still don't quite know the full details of it with uh, the reason why Alex Jung, who was competing alongside Mark Webber, didn't compete at Budapest or Spa. I I think that the only thing I can imagine is that there was something he, he hadn't qualified there was that 107% rule back then he hadn't qualified within the 107% uh, for a, a number of races leading up to that and there just there must have been something like a clause in his contract that's the only thing I can imagine um, that meant that he could be replaced for a few races mm. so the driver lining up to replace him was another driver I raced a lot in my in my uh, cadet karting going back all the way back to the 80s and 90s was uh, Justin Wilson um, and he was lined up after I think his his great Formula 3000 season that he had had um, the year before or even during that year I, I can't fully remember the details now it's going back too far but he was lined up to to jump in the car and, um, and basically he couldn't fit the car it was a tiny little chassis and it, no matter how hard they tried, there's no way he was going to fit into that that car for, for Budapest. So I think in in desperation, they because it was really getting tight, they uh, they looked anywhere they could for someone that was definitely going to fit into the car. <laughs> so they, from going from one extreme to the other, they, they came knocking on my door, and um, I yeah I. It's funny. I, I did have my reservations about it. I, I, I really, I do. I, through my career, I'd always wanted to not run before I could walk. I never jumped up karting category, for example, before I'd really mastered the one I currently was in at the time. I never jumped up to a higher powered engine and things like that that many other drivers around me were, were trying. You know, it's tempting to drive something quicker and and better, but I wanted always to master what I was in before stepping up and it didn't sit right with me. It, it just, that, that whole thing, it, it felt like running before you could walk. And I, when I jumped into the car for the first time in Budapest, I did, it only took a couple of laps before I, uh, before I realized how much of a, what, a, what a step it was away from my comfort zone, uh, from the car I knew a little bit in testing suddenly you were thrown into not just a Formula 1 race, but a Formula 1 race in, in midway through the championship. So everybody's, you know, it's, they're, they're fully up to speed. 
uh, even the rookies that started that year, they were fully up to speed now. Um, they all know where they were. They've done that circuit before. Uh, I never had Budapest of all circuits. Now I've got this experience to, to, to fall back on. I can, I can only appreciate now what a, what a tall order that was, uh, to, to arrive in the, yeah, that, that heat of summer, that tough track with very limited mileage still under my belt in Formula One. And, uh, I remember just a few laps thinking, wow, this is going to be tough. <laughs> this is what, what am I signing up to here? This is good. And we, you know, we were obviously me and my manager, we were paying for the privilege thing. It was, uh, it was either 250,000 pounds or yeah, pounds for the, for the one weekend or it was 250,000 pounds for both weekends. Mm. I, I honestly can't remember. Um, but anyway, all of that as well was uh, all part of the, the deal with my manager um, to be uh, to be repaid. So it was effectively me paying for it. And I do remember thinking, this is a this is a mistake. This is the first <laughs> couple of laps, like this is a mistake. The the car doesn't feel anywhere near as good as the car I, I had been in. And also, and the worst thing was, it had this power steering system that was designed around Bridgestone tires that were narrower, more rounded, uh, so therefore putting less torque through the, the steering motor, which was designed around the Bridgestones from the old Arrows car. Mm -hmm. And they shoehorned this system into, into the Minardi, um, and it was saturating with torque. So you had something these big fat Michelin tires on it, giving a lot more grip. And uh, you know, the great, they were great tires, uh, but too good for the power steering system. So there's little me behind the wheel, at five foot five, and not a, an ounce of muscle on me because I've been driving this lovely, super light power steering system in the VAR Honda uh, on its Bridgestone tires. A very different feel. And this thing was, I mean, you had to be, you had to be very strong to to handle this this beast of a car. And, it must have just be like the the, F, the F2 cars today that have no power steering and, and big fat wide tires. And uh, I just was not physically prepared for it. It was a shock. And yeah, I, I still to this day regret it because I was just going in, I was chucked into the deep end without ever having driven the car. If I had tested it, just at least one test beforehand, I would have said no. I definitely would have said no. I said no, if cars like this exist out there, um, I need to, I need to beef myself up because, and this is going to take time. Um, but it, it just never crossed my mind because of the BAR's power steering system was, was so much easier to handle. And I could do, you know, a hundred laps plus a day in that thing in testing. And, and my neck was the thing that would struggle, but, but not my arms, never my arms. And suddenly this thing was, was a, a machine that I couldn't. I physically couldn't cope with uh, after a, a certain amount of laps. And um, that's what transpired in, in both races I did. I, I just, all it took was one snap of oversteer here or there when you feel so drained physically and out of arm strength and round it went and uh, into, the, into the gravel and out of the race, both, both races. But I think the speed was there and I was happy with my performance in qualifying. Um, you know, I, I, I went to, it, yeah, in Budapest against Mark Webber, um, I was I was five tenths off of him in uh, in qualifying, um, which I'm looking back at that, I'm I'm pretty 
I'm, I'm actually quite pleased about because you know Mark was no slouch when it came to qualifying, and this car that he could he could physically handle better than me, being a, a much stronger person, bigger person, and and also you know, like I say, chucked in at the deep end, and and also on top of that, it was I had to run. I remember at the time thinking, oh, that's a bit of a shame, but I didn't really know the full extent to it, but. Uh, Greg Wheeler, my engineer at the time, said, oh, we've got a fuel pickup problem, man, and we're going to have to put 10 more kilos of fuel in the car uh, just to be on the safe side. And back then, I just thought, oh, yeah, okay, 10 kilos. Yeah, that's, that doesn't sound like much. And actually, when you look at it, like Budapest, that's easily, in those cars, three and a half tenths mm. per 10 kilos. Now I know, again, the experience coming into play. Uh, and, and, and three and a half tenths, yeah, that would have been... That would have been so much closer to Mark and, and again, proved that the speed was, was there in quality and, and did a similar thing in, in Spa as well. So I, w- I was looking back at that, I was quite pleased and also did a, a faster race lap than him uh, during the race. So it was only really the, the physical aspect that, um, that let me down in that, in that car. And, that's, and that's, why it, that's why it was a big mistake. And I, I learned a lesson from that. Mm. Well, I mean, you mentioned the, the qualifying times. I mean, you're only six tenths off mark at Spa, which is obviously a much longer track as well and, and one that you need full commitment and, and um, control of the car around. So you did show that. that well, I remember he, he could take, I remember, I remember he could take a rouge flat in quality and I, the only reason I couldn't take it flat is because I couldn't turn the wheel. <laughs> I, I, literally, I, wasn't, I mean, the car could do it and I could feel it could do it. And, and it was, you know, skill-wise was easy. I, I had the skill to get through that series of corners flat, but I just couldn't. I couldn't do it when you had the compression and and the, the steering would, like I say, would saturate, and suddenly you were just left with the full force of the tire instead of any power steering to help you. And this is this is one of my arguments today for women in motorsport. Um, you know, you you need to think about all these things because I'm probably closer physically to a female racing driver than most drivers on the grid and uh, being five foot five is the average height for a female and i would have had to the amount of extra gym work i would have had to have done with mark just to turn the steering wheel in that car mm. i feel would be unfair and that's my argument for for women in motorsport as well and i've had this conversation with some some female racers and their attitude was well no i'll just i'll just work harder and I said, well, defending you, why should you have to work harder than mm. somebody else that just naturally is born with more, they have more muscles just because they're a man um, and have to work less hours in the gym to cope with such heavy controls on this car? It's not a strength contest. It's a driving contest. Mm. And I think lots of people make that mistake with uh with racing, you know, is Jim Clark or Graham Hill any less of an athlete because they had little flimsy wooden steering wheels, super light steering on narrow little skinny tires? Are they any less of a driver than Lewis Hamilton because he's got this big heavy machine and he's stronger and physically throws this fast car around? No, it's just, it's the steering wheel moving some wheels on a racetrack and feeling the balance of the car. So I felt really kind of hard, hard done by it with that. And I feel like I can talk more knowledgeably, therefore fighting the corner for women in motorsport on a fair fight with male athletes 
Um, you can easily make these cards have power steering where it's not a talking point. It's not a hindrance. Um, you know, body weight against G-force, that's the same for everybody. Because mm. you know, that's all the G-force is. It's your body weight times. Um, but a, a physical steering wheel to, to move around, that's, well, that's like going to the gym. And, and therefore, that's, you have to have a separate category for, for, for female racers and male racers. And until you can, until you can make that a level playing field, then I think it, I feel like I, that day I was fighting an unfair fight because of my physical size. And, and so would therefore a female athlete behind the wheel. So it, I, again, you know, I learned from it and it helps me today in my commentary and, and, uh, and being a pundit of the sport um, to be able to talk more knowledgeably because of these uh, experiences as a driver. And, and, and yeah, you, you never stop learning. And there's yeah, a lot of I mean, assumption as well. That a lot of assumption that goes on in this uh, very kind of masculine, male-dominated world of motorsport. And and there'll be a lot of drivers out there that disagree with what I'm saying right now. No, no, you, it was your you know it's your fault for not being fit enough. You should have just tracked. Yeah, it's got to be physical. These cars have to be hard to drive. Yeah, you can make a car hard to drive, but why make it a mobile gym? That that's not what. Jim Clark and Graham Hill used to drive. I've driven cars like that in uh, at Goodwood, and they're they're so much easier to turn than even my Formula Ford was. Um, but I still hold them in very high regard on a, on a level playing field with the likes of, like I say, with Lewis and, and Ayrton Senna. You know, this uh, it, for me, it's just a control so that the, the driver can do their job. Mm. Yeah, so it comes down to skill rather than strength but yeah um yeah if, you, if we pick up on it on the sense of how it then hurt you do you think it set you back in terms of getting to an f1 seat because there's one point i've got noted down that in 05 so three years later you seemed close to a williams seat but really the rest of the time was just if bar would give you a chance at some stage until super came along so do you feel like even those two performances being the first impression of you in a formula one racing environment hurt you uh, maybe, you know, maybe it just continued to fuel that element of doubt when it came to the question of, oh yeah, but can he race? Um, I don't know. Um, I think, I think some good came out of it, some bad, um, like, like you said, the, the speed was there and I think people could realize and, and appreciate, um, that in, in some ways the job I did. It's never easy for a driver getting thrown in to the deep end like that um, in a car that they're unfamiliar with, tracks they've never driven around before. Um, and, and you know, to be fair, I did qualify the car. I, I was well within the 107% rule and for the first time in a long time, Minardi had two cars in the race again. So they were they were happy with that. Um, so yeah, some, some good came out of it, but um, there was it was kind of wrapped in a bit of negativity as well, just... Um, I think at the time, you know, I didn't want to come out at the time and say, "Oh, I couldn't, I wasn't strong enough to drive the car." Yeah. <laughs> no one would ever, no one would ever put you in another car again. Um, but it, it's just having, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I, I couldn't spend long enough explaining myself and the situation. Um, and I, I didn't really want to either. Um, I was just, I, I guess, I was just too disappointed by what had happened and. Um, 
yeah, I just, I, at the time, it, it definitely felt like a mistake. Mm. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I mean, well, um, I'm wary of the fact that as much as you're not racing right now, that you still are a busy man. So I'll, I'll try not to skip through this part of your F1 career because there's two very important points I want to focus on. One being 2005, how close to a Williams drive were you that you were aware of? Like kind of what happened there that meant there were those links, but then nothing came of it? I think um, I think basically I was doing too good a job as a test driver by that point. You know, I'd done the the, uh, the 2004 season with Friday driving, uh, which was a real positive for me and a few other drivers as well. Um, yeah, Robert Kubica to to name another one, um, really benefited from that 2004 season. Um, and so then my role as a test driver was, was I was I was lead test driver for the team basically by that point. And, uh, you know, the, the team would hang on my every word when we had a new update to the car come along. And, and I was really an influential, an influential part of the development race that was going on at the time. And would work very closely with um, the likes of Jeff Willis, who was chief designer. And I think it was it was Jeff that kind of put a blocker on it uh, because he didn't want to lose me as a test driver. And the team were quite happy with how it was working at that stage. Uh, mm-hmm. They're two race drivers and me as as the third driver. Um, I, I think I think they they didn't want to lose what they had. They didn't want to um, you know upset. So, so basically. They ended up paying me a lot more to stay, um, which I was happy about, but also a bit gutted that I could just see this potential of a race drive slipping away with Williams. It was only ever going to be a, a driver shootout test anyway at Williams. I think it was one or two other, two or three other drivers around. Um, so that's kind of that was the next process. So it wasn't like you're definitely going to be signed and you're right on the cusp of a drive. Mm. You know, you were going to have to go through a few more hurdles to get there. Um, but no, I, I, I did a seat fit at the Williams factory um, and it, all the talk seemed to be going in the right direction. It was really exciting. Honestly, it was really exciting. But um, ultimately, it was, um, I think, BAR had the option. They took that option. They knew it wasn't great for me career-wise and, and they knew what they were, they knew what they were doing to a young driver at that stage. And I think a bit out of um, respect for the job I was doing, 
but also a, a touch of guilt, perhaps. They, they offered me quite a bit more money um, to carry on doing the job I did. So that's where I remained for the, the 2005 and then six season as well. Well, then it was 07 that they then finally, well, Honda backing, finally saw you get a full-time Formula 1 seat. But the fact that it came with Super Aguri, who obviously didn't have the pedigree of Williams and you'd had the Minardi experience, was it all positive? Was it all exciting or was there any trepidation? Like, how did you feel knowing finally you were going to be racing for a full season? Oh, no, that, that time was really exciting. Yeah, the, uh, the end of the 2006 season, um, yeah, Super Guri were, were now up and running with, with their old Arrows car. And uh, I knew quite a lot of the, the personnel of the team at Super Guri in, in Leafield. And, um, you know, some of them had been previously working at, uh, in Brackley. And there were talks of the actual car from Brackley getting shipped over to Leafield and actually making this a proper uh, B-team effort. Um, and yeah, that, that, was, that was very exciting. I knew how good the car was from the 2006 season in Brackley and, um, and a car I knew obviously very well from all my testing and I couldn't wait to, to get into it, to race it and to have a full season finally in Formula One. And like I said before, with the Minardi experience, I had a chance to have a full season, starting from the beginning, winter testing, then into the racing situation, all the way through the season, doing it properly, very structured. That's how I'd always done it in my career. And, uh, and, and I was getting that chance to, to, to play it the same way. And um, yeah, it was just, it, honestly, it was just full of excitement. No trepidation whatsoever. I knew the car, I knew what I was getting myself in for. And I just couldn't wait. It's finally my time had come, and uh, yeah, and, and it, it's one of, if still not, the best season I've had in racing um, as a driver. And yeah, I, I just I never wanted it to end. I mean, I don't know if this is a good thing or bad thing to bring up, but there was one race in particular that everyone talks about from that year with the Super Guri, and it's Canada. Was that the highlight for you until uh, nature intervened, or? Was it was there other races that maybe fly under the radar? Yeah, and, and it's funny. It brings up another another soapbox topic of mine um, is the point <laughs> system in Formula One, uh, because like I say, that that's the race that people think, oh, you know, that that's the race where he should have scored points uh, before that that animal, that groundhog was in my way or ran onto the track, unfortunately. We've seen this, we see it every year, don't we, in Canada. It's, usually it's just a, oh, what a near miss that was moment. But uh, unfortunately this time, without even seeing it at all, um, I, I, I hit this this animal and unfortunately, and, and uh, it came off a lot worse than my front wing did, that's for sure. Um, which still, you know, I'm gutted by, I love animals. And uh, just, I, I don't, I've, I've run over a few in my, career mostly sports car uh, testing at night I must say but um, it, it's never nice and um, yeah it was just of course it it, uh, it it wrecked my car and I was in third place at the time we'd had that pretty horrific crash from Robert Kubica that brought the safety car out a long safety car period and allowed me to pit under the safety car gained so much time that way um, and I was on this one-stop strategy 
Uh, I was racing wheel to wheel with Ralph Schumacher the whole race and he went on to finish fifth, I think it was. Uh, so, you know, I was just in front of him when I hit the groundhog and I couldn't understand what was going on. Like, suddenly the car was, was, was nowhere. It lost all of its front grip and was locking up everywhere. And it was only when I saw images of the car afterwards, you realised what a disaster it was. We'd ripped a barge board off and the front wing had to be replaced. And yeah, that was probably my, the one moment where I should have, could have scored points in Formula One, but it's, um, it's a track actually that I didn't really deserve to score points around, if I'm brutally honest. It's one that I always struggled with. 2004, um, I never really found my feet there in, in, the, in the BAR testing. 2006 as well was the same story. So uh, it, I, I struggled in qualifying compared to Sato there. Don't know why, it's just you have some of these bogey tracks as a driver and that was one of mine. Um, it, it didn't really work out, but the race was, was going better. Um, but I still, I still couldn't match Sato's pace there in, in race trim. And, um, so yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's one race that got away points wise, but it wasn't actually my best race as a driver and definitely didn't put together a, a strong weekend. Other weekends, one that really stands out for me was the race that came after that one was Indianapolis, uh, mm. where I was, I was flying. I was the top Honda powered car in qualifying, um, out qualifying Button and Barrichello and, and Sato as well, of course, my teammate. Um, that was, that was a really strong weekend. I finished 11th in the race, overtook Jensen on track, um, unlapped myself from Rosberg, uh, which was a fun moment. I didn't realize that I had been lapped by him, but managed to pass him and pull away as well. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was a great race and, um, one where, yeah, I finished 11th. The points only went down to eighth, I think back in those days. So, you know, not really on the cusp of points again, but going back to my, my soapbox topic of points in Formula One, sometimes you have the best race and you finish 15th or 16th. I had many of those in that car and, um, and you're not rewarded with any points at all. And, um, and I, I kind of feel like that's a shame. Uh, I get the constructors' points, maybe you know if you you have to finish at top ten or whatever to get your constructors' points. But as a driver, you can put in such a fantastic performance, and you're rewarded with absolutely nothing. And then if one of say like your teammate or another driver you're fighting in a in a lowly position or a car that just that never really has the chance to score points. Some, suddenly one day in a very fluky race scores one point they beat you in the championship yeah and and it's that that's really irritating when you're when you're fighting in those low positions stuff like that really really irritates you because you're like well they shouldn't beat me in a championship i, I beat them um take um robert kubica and george russell in the williams for example yeah well robert yeah. beat george in the championship and you think well it doesn't show the true story, does it really? And I know that one race, Robert drove well and he got a point and uh, it was um, Hockenheim, wasn't it? In that really yeah. chaotic race. Yeah, where everyone crashed and even Max Verstappen did a 360 and Lewis went off the track. So it's one of those races where, yeah, if you survived, you were going to score a point and that's what happened with, um, with Robert. And yeah, of course, you know, he, he did the job that day. But all the other days, George was easily faster and often beat him on on, on the track most of the time. 
and walks away at the end of the season behind him in the championship. And you go, mm, I know on paper it's uh, it looks like George wasn't as good, but people that followed the sport thoroughly throughout the year know the real story. Mm. Um, and that's a shame. I think points going further down would definitely help resolve that. Yeah, you can um, accumulate then, can't you, over a period of time? Yeah, you might not yeah. get that big yeah. top 10 result that someone else got, but if you've got six or seven 13th places, they're going to add up to more. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in a day, a, a day and age where cars are so reliable now as well, it wasn't like that in the past. You know, if you finished the race, you were probably going to get point. Back in the 80s or 90s, you, you'd probably get world championship point. And I think the, I think the point system is a little bit outdated in many ways. And I know the other argument to that um, is that, oh, yeah, you don't just get awarded points just for turning up. But you, in a way, you, you should do as a driver. Like, you know, if you finish 18th instead of 19th, you heroically beat your teammate in the last lap, that last corner, you sent a lunge down the inside and you beat him to the line. Uh, that I want something for that. I do thank you very much. You know what I mean. So um, it, it's uh, and it's something that maybe can get get work. You can can uh, get resolved in the future. But it's it's a difficult topic to try to convince people. But it's one that you can only again uh, associate yourself with if you if you've lived it. And um, yeah, it's it, it's something that yeah, the back of the grid often gets forgotten about and. To answer your question in a very long-winded way, no, Canada wasn't my best race. I had many others that were that I drove better, um, but just completely went out uh, under the radar. I'm, I'm glad you explained it in that way, though, because that was kind of what I was looking for. Was there, there must be others that personally meant more to you, or that you felt you performed better at, but just because they weren't the headline uh, race weekend as such, uh, that they don't go as as noticed. But do you think that spell then? having that consistent run until obviously the team uh, disappeared, that that took your reputation to a higher level because you went straight from there into, you know, top class sports cars. And as much as I know you probably would have wanted to go further with Formula One, you clearly were a man in demand the second you were available. Yeah, you know, it was really a real shame when we lost uh, Super Guri and it was the first sign of Honda putting out of the sport, I guess. Um, and we all know we all know that story at Brackley. Um, but what it did do, it, it gave me a new lease of life in a time where I thought my career was completely over and ready to start looking elsewhere, things to do, other activities within motorsport. I didn't know what to do, to be honest. And this new avenue opened up in sports cars and it, it was absolutely fantastic. And LMP1, as it was back in the day, it was such a good category. Uh, I I found I found my niche, I think, in sports cars, and I, I just I loved the cars, I loved the atmosphere, um, I, I loved the camaraderie between the teammates. I loved working with other drivers as teammates rather than against them, and it just it, I just went from strength to strength really in, in sports cars very quickly. Uh, when I was signed up by Peugeot and won my first big race with them at Sebring with 12 hours. And mm. that really put me on the map uh, in sports. And I think that's what Formula One does for a driver. It, it, if you can race in Formula One, it, it definitely proves that you had the talent to 
not just survive that, but then probably go on to other categories and excel as well. Uh, it, it's like that big tick off on your CV, isn't it? Where it, it, it's just, it's validation. It's absolute validation for, unlike what I had in the test driving uh, as a driver, trying to get into the race driving in Formula One, it works the complete opposite way around. When you've raced in Formula One, you've got there on merit, and and then you know your team folds and you're looking for something else, another category perhaps, and it, you're definitely um, you're 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 a proven quantity, aren't you already? And it gives people, other teams, other categories, it gives them the confidence to put you in their car and to you know, to almost just assign you without even test driving you without even seeing what you're capable of in, in that very different car. They're just keen to sign you up. It is quite extraordinary, really, and doesn't fit a lot of the, the mentality on your way up to Formula One in terms of who puts who in what car and when. So, yeah, quite, a, quite an interesting experience doing it the other way around, going from, in inverted commas, the top uh, of, of motorsport and then filtering down into other categories i don't really like to 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 call it that i see other categories on a level playing field as formula one in terms of the skill requirements from a driver um and formula one is just it's just the pinnacle of single seater racing Mm. um and you know well and, and and but you can even have drivers that would excel in a Formula 1 car and not necessarily do the same on, a, on an oval in an, in an Indy car, for example, um, or vice versa. So it's just, it, you know, they're very, what's happening to racing now is it's becoming more and more specific. And I think you find your niche and then you, you, you excel in that. Um, and that's kind of what it was like when I arrived in sports cars. I, I, Luckily, it's a car that felt quite similar to a Formula 1 car, the way you have to drive, the amount of downforce it has. Um, and I actually think even more so today with the heavier Formula 1 cars mm. than it was back then in my day in, in F1, jumping into a sports car. There was around a, a 200, 250 kilo weight difference, whereas now you're talking 50 kilos max. So it's um, yeah, they're a lot more familiar to a, to a top-line sports car today than, than ever before, I feel. Yeah, I mean, you did it in your your big switch was oh nine, I guess. Is it fair to call Aston the big break? Because I know it was just Le Mans, but it was just Le Mans in the sense of just you know you didn't do a full season with them or other races. But that opportunity to to drive an LMP one car in the the biggest sports car race in the world did that really open that whole door for you? Well, I had driven, I'd already tested the Peugeot nine oh eight at Paul Ricard before I did the Aston drive at Le Mans. And I think that's what oh, really okay. So they were on to you. The, the yeah, they were on to me. Um, it almost worked out. There was a change of management. It's a long story. Uh, I had a draft contract which I I'd signed and sent back, but just with the change of management at the top, it it meant that David Brabham got the drive instead of me for the '09 season, and um, I had to wait another year basically to get my chance. Um, but in that in that uh, interim season, I. You know, I was treading water for a bit in in '09, and I, after driving the Peugeot, basically, I knew I I wanted to be doing LMP1. That that was the thing for me, and um, and so I I, I pushed with uh, with Pro Drive. Um, I had contact 
with a team from the past when David Richards used to be at VAR. So that's how that kind of deal came together. And um, it, it was brilliant. I did it with um, Jos Verstappen, actually, and, uh, and Darren Turner. And um, I remember Jos back in those days telling me, hey, I've got a son, his name's Max. He's really good. And you you watch for him <laughs> one day. He's going to be... <laughs> And you think, oh yeah, another, another you were like Marcus Pye, weren't you? You were like, no. I was like Marcus Pye. What goes around comes around. Yeah. No, to be fair, I, I had heard of Max already, and um, and, and I, I knew. I, I just, yeah, I, I just, I did have, I did have an inkling that Max was going to be something special, just based on his cartoon records already. But it was funny, just. Oh yeah, keen old cartoon dad. Yeah. yeah. Only eleven, and, <laughs> but I did, I did know that. Um, that, that you can be obviously very special from that age. And, but it just seemed like I was going to have to wait a really long time to see this Max Verstappen one day step foot into the Formula 1 car. I can't believe how quickly time comes around and look at it now. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was fun to share so quick, didn't they? with yours. They're, and that's again, yeah, they moved him up so fast. And, and um, yeah, such hot property. You know, he, he, he had to be signed up, had to be snapped up um, very quickly. Otherwise, someone else was going to have him. Um, so yeah, Jos was right, and he was a fantastic teammate. I loved sharing the car with him, and um, and it just solidified what I had already uh, expected of LMP1 and that world, uh, yeah, that category of motorsport, and uh, loved it. I loved uh, competing at Le Mans, but I don't think that was really a turning point. It was already having driven the Peugeot that that um, that teed it all up. I think. But then I guess. The the biggest deal like, you must have got from a racing perspective, because I know VAR was um, such a long time and a big deal for you, but it was a test role. It must have been when Toyota signed you. To be in LMP1 in the Toyota factory team must have felt like the, that surely is the pinnacle of sports car racing. I think it, it turned into it, but it, it certainly wasn't in the beginning. Um, it, it, I know it had Toyota emblazoned all over the car, uh, but it, it, it was a quite a small effort actually from TMG in the early days. It was a very humble existence um, on, a, on a relatively tight budget. And I only competed in Le Mans in the 2012 uh, season. Mm. It was a new project, new program for, for TMG. They had had the blessing of Toyota in, in Japan, but they had very limited budget. It was an R&D budget basically. Um, with a bit of marketing, I think, thrown in as well, but it certainly wasn't uh, even Peugeot kind of budget. So for me, it felt like in in that first year, it felt like a bit of a come down. I wasn't even in the number one car. Um, and it, it was all a little bit of a, a last minute deal. They almost didn't run two cars at Le Mans in 2012. So no, I would say the Peugeot deal, you know, huge manufacturer, full-on factory uh, program behind it, full support of marketing, budget. And no, it, it, that was big business. Peugeot was huge. And um, yeah, it's exciting to have them back in sports cars finally once again. And um, with, with WEC, of course. And uh, But that, that I, I love those two years I had with Peugeot, the, the 2010 and 2011 season. Um, yeah, something I always uh, always have a, a fond memory for me. Uh, a good place in my heart was it was that was what set me off on my new avenue uh, as a driver in, in sports cars. And um, 
yes, Toyota grew as uh, as time went on. The 2013 season was was a, a bigger effort. Um, we ran two cars in most of the races, and then obviously 2014, the year of the championship win for me and the team. Uh, now the, the the team was starting to fire on all cylinders and um, and was becoming more of a of a factory, a, a true Toyota effort. Um, and yeah, it, it was a bit of a far cry from back then from where the team is now and where actually I ended my, my years at Toyota. Uh, yeah, it just carried on growing all the time. Um, but it, it certainly didn't feel like that in the, in the early days. I'm, I'm sure then your experience played a, a big role in that from um, what you brought to the table, certainly alongside, um, yeah, Sebastian and Stefan. But I don't want to linger too much on this kind of final racing point because it certainly isn't a big break moment but 2016 at Le Mans is that a big <laughs> regret's probably the wrong word is it but it is is that a big moment in your career that you'll always look back on yeah I think there are two things you know one is not scoring a point in Formula 1 and the second one is not winning Le Mans outright um, or at all um so I've, I've had uh, second place in uh, LMP2 and LMP1. So I've had a third in, uh, in, in LMP1 as well and a fourth. But uh, yeah, never the victory. But in my mind, it, you know, it's a very fickle race and it's a bit like the Indy 500, isn't it? If you're right place at the right time, you will win it. And it's a race that chooses its victor, not the other way around. And I've learned that over the 13 attempts I've had there in all kinds of different categories that I know that I I did the job that day in 2016 to win the race. I, it was actually my best race I ever put together at Le Mans. And, you know, I remember catching the leading Porsche, overtaking him for the lead. It was Nick Tandy behind the wheel at the time, stretching out a lead, handing over the car to Kazuki Nakajima, who now we were a minute and a half in the lead. And it just all looked like it was going our way finally after many attempts um, when we should have won it and when I should have won it. It felt like finally, uh, as a track that had been so cruel to me, I'd you know, broken my back there in 2012, had a pretty nasty crash in the Ferrari Pro Drive in 2003, my first ever uh, foray into the world of Le Mans and uh, ended up in hospital that time as well when the car broke. Um, and actually, ironically, into the same barrier at Mulsanne Corner. Oh. And I felt like, yeah, this is this is finally, this is the moment. 2016, this is the moment. We had had a pretty difficult season up to that point. And it's just something, though, as I was watching the race, I was in a, in a team uh, hospitality area away from the pit garages. And for the, you know, I'd, I'd done my time behind the wheel. My work was done. And I was just watching Kaz out there lapping consistently like he always did and not putting a, a, a foot wrong and I had full trust in him and the, the team of people around me that, that driving-wise was going to be fine. But I just I couldn't bring myself to put my overalls on because you need the overalls on to go and obviously celebrate and get on the podium. Um, There's a, a bit of a difference to the world of Formula 1 where, of, of course, you're wearing overalls. You just got out of the car and you just went <laughs> in sports car. You know, you, I was relaxing. I was just in just in my, uh, my team kit watching 
watching the race and uh, it got to the point where it was about 12, 13 minutes to go towards the end and a team member came in and said, oh, there you are. It's, it's you know, you've got to put your suit on and come down to the garage. And I, I had my overalls sitting up in my in my driver room ready to put on and uh, and I remember thinking, I just, I just, it's almost like tempting fate. I don't want something to say that I, I don't, I don't want to put them on. I, I just feel like, no, I shouldn't. I shouldn't put them on. It's, it's, it's counting chickens kind of moment. And, um, and anyway, it got to, it got to 10 minutes to go or nine minutes to go. I remember thinking, I really should by the time I'm down into the garage now. It, it, I mean, look, come on. We're 10 minutes, 10 minutes to go. It's got to be. It's got to be fine, surely. So, right, put the overalls on. And I was actually, I was this close to tweeting a picture of my overalls hanging up in my room saying, should I put them on or shouldn't I? <laughs> I thought, oh, don't be so superstitious. Don't be so superstitious. Don't be an idiot. Just put them <laughs> And uh, so I put them on. I had my headphones on. I listened to the radio and all was, all was calm, all was good. And I plopped myself down in the, in the, uh, in the, in the pit garage area. And um, yeah, you could feel the tension was rising and the the the, the excitement and um, anticipation. As it was it was a really nice feeling. With five minutes to go now, had Seb sitting by my side, and uh, yeah, we had driven so well together. And it was just uh, this was going to be our moment. And um, and and yeah, just m- lots of people, including Seb, actually for some reason didn't have their radio on. They they weren't listening to to the car um, and, and and it was only when Kazuki came over the radio, he came over the radio first of all, I remember him saying, I've got no power. And this is about, yeah, it's about five minutes to go now. He said, I've got no power. And was, my first reaction was, oh, it's just, it's just, he's getting nervous and he's just hearing things, he's feeling things, surely that, that isn't really there. And uh, of course, I've been in that position many times before and it was only when he came up, I mean, he's the most placid guy. He's, he's, he's just the sweetest guy on the planet, Kaz. And it was only when he came on the radio and swore and sounded like he had such panic in his voice. And again, with profanities, with the words, I've got no bleeping power, came along. That's when I turned to Seb and I could, just I grabbed him. I couldn't believe the words that had come out because that's when I knew there was a serious problem because mm. he would never come on the radio like that ever. I, from all the years I shared a car with him, um, I, he, he just inside the car or out, out of the car, never heard him swear. And when he did that, I thought, Oh no. And my heart sank it, and I just turned to self, grabbed him. And I, I basically repeated the words of Kazuki to him. And then I looked around and people were still smiling. Some, some people are still like smiling, but they didn't have their headphones on. I started to announce it to all of them. They're like, guys, put your, put your headphones on. Put your, listen to what's going on. And uh, then I started to see more and more people getting a bit anxious, more nervous and serious expressions on their faces. I just, with, what is it, three, three minutes to go, three and a half minutes to go, we saw the picture of the car grinding to a halt and uh, that was uh, that was it with um, one lap basically. One lap to go because it's three and a half minute lap time, isn't it there? With one yeah. lap to go, the car stopped on the main straight and that was it. My Le Mans, really my best chance of winning that race was gone in that moment. Um, and it honestly, it's still, yeah, 
put myself back in that position now today, it still really hurts. It really, really hurts. Um, it's, it's, you know, I've, I've lost family members, um, unfortunately in, in the past. And I can, I can say I, I grieve with that race in a, in quite a similar way, actually. The feelings are quite similar to the grieving you go through when you lose a loved one. Um, and I, it, it, it triggered a lot of uh, mental health problems for me. A lot of anxiety came in after that. Um, and it was awful. And it's still awful today. So thanks for reminding me about that. <laughs> I was about to say, there's, there's part of me that's so sorry for even asking the question, but there's also <laughs> part of me that's so thankful that you're so honest with the answer. Um, because I think it's very easy for people just to dismiss after all the effort and time and energy that goes into not only that one race, but your whole career to want that reward yeah. and not get it, how, how it affects someone. Um, because it's, it's a, a huge, um, defining, I guess, validation of everything you've done and would have been. And just because the car didn't yeah. complete one more lap, you don't have it when there's nothing more you could have done or should have done. So, um, thank goodness, thank goodness. I won the champ, the world championship in 2014. That's mm. all I can say, because if I had walked away from sports cars without any big achievement um, to, to sort of hang, my, hang my hat on, it, I would have felt really hard done by, honestly, because I, I always had such speed, such consistency in sports cars. Um, it really felt like it was my, like I say, my, my category where it all just really clicked. And, um, and, and that would have been so unfair so um, but you know that's racing and it's life it's, it's not fair um oh I, I really learned the hard way uh, that that day at Le Mans in 2016 that was that was a race that I think lots of people they they remember um and and funny still to this day people say oh was that your car oh no I'm so sorry yeah and they 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 remember where they were when they were watching it what they were doing um and it, it was just disbelief, utter disbelief that a intercooler pipe fell off, mm. decided to fall off with five minutes to go in a 24-hour race. It's, it's, it's just unthinkable. It, it really is. And, it, and it, it overheated the turbo and the turbo failed and the engine went into limpo mode. And oh, it's, it's just... You, you you couldn't write it. You couldn't make it up, honestly. But um, you know, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a bittersweet race in many ways. That one for me, because like I say, it's it's the Le Mans that I put together out of all the ones I did. The thirteen Le Mans I, I competed. It's the it's that one, ironically, where I drove my absolute best, um, and and I'm really proud of the job I did that weekend. So. Personally, I look back at it with with fond memories because I was on fire. I was I was that was the race you want to have at Le Mans when you're a driver, and I did everything I I needed to, everything that was expected of me, and I'm I'm a hard person to please when I'm trying to please myself, and I'm super critical uh, on myself. Always have been. It's probably my biggest uh, downfall as a driver. And that race, I can look back on and go, you were, you were bloody good there, mate. Well done. Yeah, it was a very, very impressive performance. And um, like you say, people do remember where they were. I was back in press room, just gone back from the grid. 
Um, they were about to start that race See? with a stupid See? timing yeah. and everyone stopped. Like no one paid attention to the start of that Grand Prix because everyone was like, what's just happened? Yeah. But um, as much as I didn't want to bring it up, I'm so glad we did discuss it, but I, I want to finish on maybe a high note because I know you're still working on things with Mercedes during the sim there. You've got a, a lot of other projects that you work on. Um, but the fact that we've sat here and talked for over an hour and a quarter now um, on this pod, which is this is feature length for for this series, but it's a great way to wrap it all up, actually. Um, it does ex- show what an eloquent, brilliant storyteller you are, how well you make things relatable and how you've transferred that into the world of commentary and analysis and punditry, um, mainly with Sky, but I know you're doing some other stuff with work and things as well. Uh, what what about getting into commentary so early? Because you did, I think, was it Five Live? You did um, some radio commentary in the mid-2000s uh, as part of your test well, being at Grand Prix, I assume, as a test driver. Was it something you always wanted to do? And do you think it kind of elevated your status and career even further? Because you must have then become so relatable and so admired by so many more people than if you'd just been a helmet behind a wheel. Yeah, well, well first of all, thank you very much. Um, it, it's something I still don't feel like I'm natural at when I'm, when I'm doing it. And again, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm always hard on myself. Um, my own performances, and I, I hate watching myself back when I do the Skypad and stuff like that. I, 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 it makes me cringe. I don't want to. I don't like the idea of being on TV at all. Um, I can confirm you are excellent at it. Absolutely, <laughs> excellent at it. please. But, uh, Especially after that Le Mans message, I think we need to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not hunting for, uh, <laughs> for for any accolades at all, any uh, any positives, but. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I, the thing I really enjoy is just explaining my sport to people. Um, it's a difficult sport to try and explain. It's uh, it's quite a it's quite an insular sport in many ways from behind the behind the visor. And to try and bring those experiences to other people, I feel like that's what I get a kick out of. I get a kick out of it. Um, and it's it's not a sport anybody can just pick up and play, you know, so to speak. It's uh, it's not like other it's not like ball sports and things like that 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 other people can relate to very easily and give it a go themselves um i love i love explaining my sport and um yeah i think back in the 2000s early 2000s i had a chance to step into the commentary box and um and explain my experiences and um and i really enjoyed it i loved also talking about uh my sport as a fan um and and you know I, I was always hooked on the TV watching um, Formula One, listening to the likes of Murray Walker and, and James Hunt back in the day, showing my age now. And um, yeah, it's just I, I've just always been keen to to uh, you know talk about the sport that I love since since I was a young kid. Well, you do it so brilliantly, um, and you have done it so brilliantly in terms of explaining your whole. Uh, career journey and the, and the moments that were so crucial to it today so and i really appreciate your time um it's been a, an absolutely fascinating chat and thanks so much for joining us no problem yeah thank you sorry it took so long <laughs>